The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. So starting this Sunday and for the next two Sundays, I'd like to give a series of talks on what's called the three characteristics. This particular teaching is uh, very important for the Buddhist tradition that the insight meditation uh, practice is housed in, that uh, champions it. Uh, When I was practicing in Thailand and Burma, I heard many, many talks on the three characteristics. It was probably the most common talk that my teachers would give. And uh, I used to kind of tune out after a while. They were so repetitive. But um, they were taught a lot. And they're emphasized a lot, and they're centrally important for insight meditation itself. And the emphasis they give uh, is given to this particular teaching. Uh, It's almost as if this is a a sacred teaching or a sacred part of of our experience that we want to kind of uh, tune into, respect, have certain reverence and care around, and to uh, be familiar with. And the three characteristics are three aspects of all areas of our human life which everyone shares. The three common characteristics everywhere. Before I tell you what they are, I want to use an analogy. Uh, If uh, you're an immigrant to the United States, as I was as a young child, and um, you don't speak, you come to this country and you don't happen to speak the language of this country, and you, so you have to decide, well, how are you going to figure out how to communicate with people in this big United States? And you uh, look around and you realize that there are many languages in this country. There are many different uh, immigrants from all over the world that have come here. There are people who've been here for <coughs> millennia who speak Native American languages. There's uh, and the, you know, the oldest European language in the United States is Spanish. And there's all these different languages that uh, are spoken here, and the numbers keep increasing. So you want to speak to the people who live on this land. So one approach is to um, learn all those languages. You know, 120, 240 languages. I don't know how many languages are spoken in this country, but you could learn them all. And and once you make sure you know them all, then you can um, get along just fine with everyone. That's one approach. Another approach <clears throat> is to learn one or two most common languages or the, the common, most common language that most people share and uh, understood that it's a shared language um, in this country and now more and more in the globe. And that would be English. And so English is the, co- the language we have in common and it's a lot easier to learn English, one language, than the, all the other languages. So you learn the common denominator. You learn something that everyone has in common and then it's easier to get along. So the same thing with our human experience. We want to try to understand something that's uh, true in all our experiences uh, so we can really understand something centrally important and communicate with all our experiences, be wise about them, as opposed to learn all the different particulars. Because every, every experience we have is a context and particular and all the people we meet, they're all unique in their own ways. <coughs> and, um, but, but what is it we all have in common? And that what we have in common is called the three characteristics. And these are that uh, all things that we encounter, all things that we experience, um, have the characteristic of being somehow inconstant, being impermanent, 
being changeable, changing. The second characteristic is that um, <clears throat> everything that we encounter, everything we meet, everything we experience inside ourselves and outside ourselves is <clears throat> uh, characterized by a Buddhist word, an uh, Indian word called dukkha. And dukkha uh, has a w- wide variety of meanings in different contexts. But for this purpose, this is probably um, understood as unreliable. That everything you encounter is unreliable in some particular ways. And if you n- understand how they're unreliable, then um, you're not going to rely on them, hopefully, and things with life will be a lot easier. The third characteristic <clears throat> is that um, everything that you encounter, everything that you, especially yourself, uh, in some particular way, doesn't qualify as being the essentially true you. And it kind of relates to you, and so okay, okay to, you know, if, to, you know, if your neighbor has um, an itch, uh, you, you don't scratch it usually. You know, you, you know, if you scratch your own itches. And um, so you know, there's, there's difference between us, uh, and things that kind of belong more uniquely to me. But even things that belong uniquely to me, it doesn't qualify as some kind of essential, true, this is who I really am. So this, these are called the three characteristics, the characteristics of impermanence, the characteristic of unreliability, and the characteristic of what's called not-self. And not-self, you have to understand to be, not, it doesn't qualify as the essentially true you, these things. And what's important to understand about these char- three characteristics is they characterize our experience. So there's something that we learn to see and uh, learn to tune into, it's not something we have to believe. It's not like you have to believe any of this. Uh, it's not like a, uh, that kind of you know, religious belief. It's rather <clears throat> you know, something that we, uh, uh, we notice. It's useful to notice when this is the case in our experience. To notice that things are changing. To notice that things are unreliable. To notice that things are, have this quality of not-self. And uh, our lives are, can be a lot easier to live if you keep these three things in mind. And we notice them as they occur. And in this tradition as well, as we go deeper and deeper into the meditation practice of insight, these three characteristics become increasingly important as, as insights. In fact, they're considered to be the insights of insight meditation practice. And people have many insights. Some of them are unique to yourself, which are important insights. But uh, what we're looking for here is that which is universal, that we all share as human beings, and something that we, is an understanding or perspective that we can bring no matter where we go, no matter what the situation is, these three perspectives have value in helping us not to cling or get caught or get disappointed or frustrated. So the tradition puts a lot of emphasis on this. It's an important part of a wise living. It's an important part of the deepening of insight practice. And it's a catalyst for the experience of liberation. So the, today I'd like to talk a little bit about the first one, which is anicca in the Pali Buddhist language, that usually translated into English as impermanence. And it can be said that Buddhism is a one big contemplation about impermanence. It's that important, the whole experience and understanding of impermanence. 
Um, and it's nothing unique to Buddhism emphasizing impermanence. It's not like this is the, the Buddha, Buddhists have the monopoly on teachings on impermanence. It's you know it's something that we see in our lives, and you know some of us remember the the old Greek philosopher Heraclitus who said, "You can't step in the same river twice," which was a kind of teaching about how this life that we live in, the stream of life, is always impermanent, always changing, and. Um, and it's, it's not actually Groundhog's Day ever. It's always changing. It's always going to be new. And, um, and some people encounter impermanence in their lives, change, uh, early in their lives. It's a big part of their life because of, sometimes because of tremendous loss or moving and, and uh, losing their friends and going to a new place and, and, um, or being, uh, growing up in, in times of war. And a lot of disruption and a lot of challenges that, um, you know, impermanence and very, a lot of instability. And so they encounter that early on and it becomes kind of an important part of their formation as a human being to encounter that. Some people encounter it as they get older. Uh, it's, it's, uh, you get to a certain age, maybe it's a little different for different people, um, but uh, I was with someone this weekend they said, oh yeah, when I get together, together with my friends now, mostly we talk about our health. You know, at some point, the changing, uh, you know, the change, changing qualities of our physical body and our health is so big and lo- such a big impact on our lives, and so interesting that uh, it becomes a common conversation to- topic. And um, so, in change and impermanence and loss um, is something that all human beings somehow have to deal with and cope with and respond to, and if we're going to live a wise life. And, uh, Indian religions. Uh, back in the time of the Buddha, uh, put, all of them uh, put a lot of emphasis on impermanence, how much the world is a changing flow of phenomena, a river of change all the time. <clears throat> and, um, and there's a kind of an equation that you can kind of simplify equation to understand some of the teachings of some of the people of the time of the Buddha and some Buddhists as well. And that is to uh, equate... Uh, the world of impermanence with suffering. So in other words, uh, impermanence equals suffering. And if the world of change is the same as suffering, then uh, the solution is to transcend this world. And so there was a religion sometimes, and some Buddhists also, they'd have just get, let's get out of here, let's go to some kind of wonderful uh, realm of consciousness that's totally removed from this world and nothing to do with it because this world is just too difficult and the only place that you can really be free or really get some kind of lasting comfort is to really go someplace in another plane kind of existence almost a plane of consciousness the Buddha uh, had a little different equation maybe I mean, this is my summary of it and that is, he had a tremendous recognition of impermanence, just like his compatriots in the religious life in ancient India. Um, and there was a connection between impermanence and suffering. But he had a different equation. Rather than impermanence equals suffering, his equation was um, impermanence times clinging equals suffering. So... As soon as you have that kind of equation, then you have two choices. You could still transcend if you want, 
if you can get away, if you can, if you can successfully get away with it, that really you know find that, or uh, you uh, so you get away from the world of impermanence, or you drop the clinging part of the equation, because if you don't have clinging, if you have impermanence times zero, it doesn't equal imper- uh, suffering, and that's the Buddhist approach, is to see that clinging is what uh, has to be there to go from the world of impermanence to the, to the experience of suffering. And so to address the clinging, to understand that. But to address clinging, they, uh, what it really helps to understand impermanence, to understand, to really see it in, in a deep way. So one of the things that uh, uh, I think is often true about the changing nature of our lives is that change can bring three important things with it. Uh, uh, it can bring a sense of loss, experience of loss. And uh, that sometimes, some people, when people think about change or impermanence, that maybe comes up first and foremost, is that we lose what we cherish, uh, things that are important for us, things that we built up and created, that sooner or later many things are lost and change. And uh, some things are unpredictable when we're going to lose them. The, um, you know, you could, you could be, have a lot of confidence that you put together a successful life and a stable life and you have a home and a bank account and all kinds of things. But there's no guarantee, it's unreliable that those things are really going to stay for you. Uh, I had a friend, uh, I have a friend who um, uh, went, to the, went to the beach uh, with her car and her car keys and driver's license uh, back in was it 1990, I think, and bit the Oakland fire. And when she came back from the beach, her house had burned down, and her house was her office, and everything that she had, her office, her papers, everything, right? All she had was a driver's license and her car key and a car key. So she had to start all over again. So she wasn't expecting that, that kind of impermanence. That wasn't part of the plan. So sometimes there are these, you know, impermanence visits, so there's loss and change. But a very important part of impermanence and change is that it um, allows for new possibilities. Unless there was recycling, unless there was, that um, we made space, that new things can't grow. And this is a very, I don't know if you know this, probably you know this, but very common teaching to children in schools these days is they uh, talk about how there has to be, com- you know, the, the leaves fall and it's a kind of a dying of the leaves and the leaves decompose and that allows for the new possibility of new growth for the next year. So this idea that uh, change also allows for new possibilities. And, uh, and luckily, that's often the case. That, uh, because sometimes what we lose, what, what we, is we're ready for it to lose it. Like, uh, please, let's change this. I know more of this. <laughs> I'm ready for something else. And we're, you know, so that uh, it's a new possibility. The third thing that Buddhism emphasizes around the experience of impermanence, the, na- the nature of impermanent permanence is that um, uh, in that things are changing and impermanent, they change uh, because of causes and conditions. And so the causes and conditions is the wider context in which things occur. And rather than th- seeing things as being solitary, individual, permanent, there's a very strong uh, uh, emphasis in Buddhism to understand how things exist in context, how they exist together with other causes and conditions that bring them into play. And um, some of the deepest teachings in Buddhism 
uh, arise out of this idea of things exist uh, in relationship to other things, I- interdependence, uh, co- uh, dependent co-arising, that things exist, and to, to be- begin appreciating the way in which many, many things in our life are interactive and interdependent in, uh, with each other, um, uh, interconnected, is a very powerful thing to do on many, many different levels. It's certainly true on the social level to begin appreciating how all of us are interdependent and, and uh, you know, contextual to each other and all the different ways in which we influence and relate to each other is a powerful thing to experience and to know and to be wise about. And so uh, that's only possible because of impermanence. Things change. Because things change, we can look at the cause and conditions for their change. So to begin tuning into these th- three aspects of impermanence and how they work in our life. It's not just impermanence, they relate to these other things. And as I said earlier, uh, uh, there are people who experience impermanence, instability, uh, very powerfully in their life, sometimes early in life when it's formative, like it creates a sense of insecurity growing up because things were so unstable growing up. And that carries into adulthood, this lack of stability. Some people experience uh, instability because of where they live. And, um, and the, it's so uh, challenging and difficult, their environments where they live, the, the, um, the violence in their cities or the poverty or the, all the various changes that go on. And so to emphasize impermanence and how everything's impermanent sometimes it's a bit depressing because some people, they, that's what their life experience is all about. And to hear these Buddhists say, you know, just to understand that everything's impermanent and you'll be happy, um, it's kind of putting salt in the wound. Um, and so I think it's important to understand that the teaching on the, the impermanence is meant to be an insight. It's meant to be a perspective but meant to be a revelation. It's supposed to be what we kind of notice when it when it rears its head, when it's there. Um, but it, it's an insight, as opposed to what we cultivate through the practice. We don't cultivate the experience of impermanence. What we cultivate in the practice is stability. And uh, we cultivate the opposite of the three characteristics. So we cultivate stability as the opposite of impermanence. We cultivate uh, reliability and, and well-being as the opposite of the insight into dukkha. And we cultivate self-confidence as the uh, kind of corollary to uh, the insight into not-self. So in terms of impermanence, um, uh, the, a lot of what the practice is about is developing and cultivating a variety of different forms of personal stability. And first, you, uh, you know, it's very important to have some, if you can, create some modicum of stability in your life as a whole. So, uh, so you know, such things as um, having maybe some, um, uh, you know, your home to be somewhat stable if you can. Have it clean. Don't have the dishes piled up in an unstable way in the sink. Um, you know, that creates a certain kind of, uh, you know, you come in and you say, oh no, it's going to fall over. 
Um, so sometimes, you know, taking care of your personal life, um, keeping your home maybe clean or a or, little bit orderly. You don't want to be uptight about it, I hope, but, but, uh, but kind of, you know, have some sense of stability around you that you don't pay your bills if you can, uh, you know. Uh, don't kind of like, you know, wait until the last day and then scramble to try to figure out how to get it in time and you're kind of anxious. Kind of do the kind of things that you can kind of calm and settle and, and have a kind of stable life. Or, um, I think is a very important thing if you want to practice and, and be able to sit down and meditate and not be agitated and caught up. Um, give some uh, thought to what you do with your daily lives. And uh, do you uh, keep them so busy that you're out of breath going from one thing to the other? The modern life has uh, so many people here, especially here in our society, um, there is a lot of options. There's a lot of TV shows to watch. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of different things to, to do. And so there can be some idea you're supposed to do it all. And it doesn't create for a lot of stability if you're trying to do too many things, even if all the things are good. And it creates more stability if there's a little more time and space between things and you can catch your breath. So there's stability on the wider uh, plane. And then there's this kind of stability of the mind, internal stability. Um, And that's one of the functions of meditation practice is to help us cultivate stability. It's often uh, the the idea of calm comes along with that, to develop a sense of calm. But I like the word stability, where the mind is stable, the mind is settled. The opposite of stability is agitated and fragile and kind of leaping around and jumping around and anxious. So to kind of uh, figure out some way to physically help your physical body feel stable. If you're meditating, um, to give some care and attention to your posture in meditation and your body and see if you can kind of settle into your body so that the uh, body feels stable when you meditate. And and, uh, the sense of stability can be quite strong. You can feel rooted, you can feel grounded. It's possible to feel, um, you know, like there's a column of strength and stability that's here that holds us up. We're not like kind of just, you know, jello that kind of, you know, flops down and meditates on the couch and like whatever. But, you know, you really... And this is one of the, uh, you know, if you see uh, uh, some long-time meditators sometimes, you can kind of sense that there's a lot of stability and strength and uprightness in how they sit. Um, they don't uh, slouch in their couch or chair when they meditate. They're, they're sitting there in some upright way. So physical stability. And then mental stability. Uh, to uh, consider uh, what your state of your mind is. Is it agitated? Is it anxious? Is it jumping around? You jump between thoughts all the time. One of the places to notice these things is when you meditate. Some, that's one of the functions of meditation is for you to notice um, the quality of your mind. And if you look at your mind when you meditate, is it stable or is it unstable? Does it jump around? Does it move around a lot? Does it chasing its thoughts? Or, does it, or is there a subtleness? Is the mind settled? Or do you have the ability as you meditate to have it settled, still, um, uh, uh, kind of a strong sense of here? And so part of meditation practice is to create that stability. Knowing that it's a temporary thing, it's not something you can ultimately rely on, 
but that it's very helpful to do that. So, so that what we cultivate in the practice is stability. As, we bec- as the mind gets more stable, then the, uh, we see change and impermanence more clearly. Uh, not necessarily the big change, you know, of, you know, the changes of society or the big changes of our life, but we start seeing more and more the, the, the uh, subtle underlying changes that go on all the time. The ways in which the mind and thoughts and perceptions change constantly and are in flux. How much the body is constantly a, f- a field of change going on. The more stability we have, the more we tune into the direct experience of life is a f- stream and flow of change all the time. And there's a kind of a paradox. And the paradox is that um, uh, the more the mind jumps around, the more anxious and, a- and a- agitated the mind is, the more likely it's going to be caught up in thoughts and concepts. And in particular, those thoughts and concepts will have a sense of permanence. Will make, it will fall into the delusion of permanence. This is the way things are. Or we'll see things through the filter of our ideas. And we see another person, and uh, we don't see them as someone who's changed in the moment and changing each day and ready to kind of experience them as a new person each time. But we carry with us our old concepts of them. This is who they are, and they haven't changed. And maybe you've had the experience of kind of wanting to shake someone up and say, hey, you know, I'm not the person I was 10 years ago. You know, please kind of give me a chance to see that I'm different or I'm not I'm in a different mood right now or something. So to not carry with us, the more we're agitated, the more we're in concepts. The more we're in concepts, the more likely we'll see things as permanent. The more, less the mind is agitated, the less the mind is jumping around, the more stable the mind is, the less it's going to be involved in its thoughts, caught up in its thoughts, jumping around in its thoughts and its concepts. And the less it's going to uh, uh, overlay ideas of permanence on experience. And more we'll see change. So the more inner stability, more inner instability there is, the more we assume things are permanent. The more inner stability there is, the more we see things as being changeable. So I'll give you one example from this last week. Um, so uh, I had a cold for a week. About two weeks ago. I ended last, what, a week ago. And um, I hadn't had a cold for quite a while. So it's kind of like, I don't know, maybe that's one excuse of uh, what my mind did to it. But it went on and on. It went on for a week, which is a long time for me. So... And um, so I, I watched my mind, and uh, and uh, every day that I had the cold, um, I had a different idea of how this was going to be forever. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know. Oh no, you know. And it's a, um, you know, and, and I'm with someone who had Lyme disease, and I said, so she, she was talking about her Lyme. Oh no, that's really this is it. It's not really a cold. It's Lyme disease. That was, it was one day, and then, and I went through all these different things. Oh, this is it. You know, but each day what was going to be permanent uh, got less serious. 
<laughs> so what was impermanent, what was, what was permanent, what I thought was permanent was impermanent. Like every day there was a new one. So I've seen, I know my mind well enough, but so I can kind of laugh at it and see it and not take it too seriously. But there's, you know, the mind is, I don't know about your minds. Uh, probably you're kind of more sane than me. But, but uh, my mind produces these thoughts, these ideas. And, um, and some of those ideas are not really that wise. <laughs> and and, and uh, one of the kind of deluded ways my mind can function is uh, imputing permanence on experiences which I find difficult. Uh-oh, this is it. It's going to be this way forever. And, um, and I don't have to even think about it consciously. It's like there's a, like a certain attitude in the back of the mind that kind of like, oh, oh this is it. <laughs> um, many years ago with my son was quite small. Um, we're having our, uh, some challenges with him, particular to the day. And uh, I didn't realize that I had, was, had this attitude, uh-oh, this is it, the permanent. It's always going to be this way. It was, kind of was operating kind of subtly in the background until my wife and I were kind of like dealing with all the had to be dealt with and at some point we, we looked up at each other and she said to me it's one of those days and as soon as she said it's one of those days uh, it kind of popped the bubble of my delusion of permanence this little attitude uh oh this is it and then you know the whole day got better of course so we cultivate stability and then as the mind becomes more stable um uh, the deeper flow of impermanence in our life beca- stands out in, in highlight. And the insight meditation practice uh, has a lot to do with creating this in meditation this stability, tremendous stability and stillness in the mind. So we start tuning into and noticing uh, uh, how things are constantly shifting and changing. So you might see it sounds like a paradox, but uh, this is kind of the direction that insight meditation goes is to have an ex- not just have an experience, deep experience of change and flow. As we do this, um, at some point, the experience uh, uh, of impermanence, of change, becomes all-pervasive, meaning every, we start seeing that everything in our experience, whatever we're experiencing, as an experience, as how we perceive it, how we know it, is in constant flux and change. It's changing quite rapidly. Um, you might think that, you know, you're seeing, if you're looking at a tree, that the tree isn't so impermanent. What's impermanent is that our perception of the tree is constantly shifting and changing and being reconstructed and made up all the time. And so we start noticing that deeper and deeper the whole expe- way in which we experience our life is in constant flux and change. Some people find this a little frightening and uh, disorienting. This is why cultivating strong stability is really important for insight practice. So they have the stability to be able to tune into the, this very deep level of change that the meditation can open up to. And then for some people, that experience of all-pervasive flow of change, the river of change that is our lives in this deep way, becomes what the tradition calls a door of liberation. There are three doors of liberation, they say. 
each of them corresponding to the three characteristics. The, three, the, the, the door of liberation that opens with a deep experience of impermanence is called uh, the door of the signless. It's a little strange word, signless, not having a sign. And what sign means here, in, in modern psychological English, uh, maybe we'd say the door of projectionless. Where we no longer project anything. Uh, we're no longer uh, uh, assigning concepts, values, judgments on our experience. And this is what the human mind does. It kind of needs to do that. It's kind of the constructive aspect of how we get around in our society, in our world, is we have, uh, we simplify things by having, seeing things through the filter of concepts. And hopefully they're usually, those concepts are appropriate and, and help us kind of shorthand get around the world. Um, and that, you know, the example I like to use is like this bell. You know, we have this bell here. And um, so if you come into, into IMC and you see this sitting up in front here, you know, it's reasonable to assume it's a bell. If, if an, uh, somehow the person who's supposed to ring the bell is not here or doesn't remember to ring the bell, and you, you, know, you look up and you see, oh, there's a bell up there and you know, people are getting restless. And so you would come up and ring the bell and do a kindness for people, you know, being, you know because it's a bell. So that's convenient. But this could easily be something else in a different setting. Uh, this could be a, a bowl to have breakfast in. And, uh, and in fact, uh, Buddhist monastics have bowls very much like this, that they eat their food in, they gather their food, uh, this uh, bowls. Uh, it could be um, a spittoon. And um, some of my teachers in Asia, med- great meditation masters, um, had spittoons next to them and during the Dharma talk suddenly you hear this gurgling and <laughs> clearing of the throat and there'd be a momentary pause and then what? <laughs> they had very good aim <laughs> and I, I don't know if you know if I'd get away with that here <laughs> uh, just, what? Yeah. <laughs> you'd move <laughs> <laughs> so you know this could be a spittoon it could be uh, it could be a little you know flower vase I suppose it could be a doorstop you put it upside down hold the door open and it could be all kinds of things right so but you know innocently and appropriately enough we come in here you think it's a bell but it's, it's quite something to be able to see uh, before you, you see that your mind is kind of Say the mind is quiet and still, and see that the arising of thought, bell, arises in your mind. And to know that that's a concept that the mind has made that's being assigned to this object. As opposed to assuming that the assigned concept is a one on one correspondence with the object. And so, you know, we do this with people too, right? To be, sometimes it's tremendous social harm is done because we assign value, we assign concepts uh, to people. We see them through a certain filter. We assign things to them. And, uh, and, we, and, uh, and what's sad is when there's a one-to-one correspondence, we think it's true. But to sit quietly or be, be, be have enough mindfulness to watch the birth of a concept around someone else 
and then to watch it arise and to know and take responsibility, know it comes from you, and to know that it might, be not, it might not be a one-to-one match, probably it isn't, and then to be willing to kind of put that aside and see the person more directly as the person actually is. So there's a, one of the doors of liberation is a door where we don't assign a sign. We don't assign a concept or a value onto our experience. And what happens when we don't assign anything to our experience, we allow it just to be, is that um, the mind has nothing to cling to because we cling to concepts. We cling to those ideas that we have of things. And we're no longer assigning value, concepts, ideas, then uh, that's considered a door of liberation when that prompts the mind to let go totally. When there's a complete letting go of every possible form of clinging that consciousness can have. Consciousness is set free. It's kind of this experience of liberation. That experience, so we create, we cultivate stability it gives us insight into impermanence. That insight into impermanence, when it's strong, can, for some people, open to the door of the signless. And when the door that when the door of signless opens to a liberation, um, that each of those these opens to a gift. And the gift of deep experience of impermanence, the signless experience, this projectionless experience is the gift of having beginner's mind. The gift of being able to see fresh our experience and to not carry with us all our ideas and to project automatically our ideas onto our reality, into ourselves, into our situation. But to be able to wake up in the morning and see this is a new moment, this is a new day. To see that every moment is a new day. There's never Groundhog Day. We never repeat anything. That the uh, stepping into the future, stepping into the future of the next moment, the next minute, is uh, is as infinite, kind of like infinite possibility. It's like it's like a fresh start. And the idea of a fresh start always the unknown. We step into the unknown every moment. Uh, and to have that beginner's mind and that freshness and that openness. Um, uh, and not to carry the burden, to carry with us all the ideas and concepts and histories and memories, and not to automatically see the next moment, the next day as it arises through the filter of the past, but to be able to see it completely fresh and open uh, is the gift of the experience of signless liberation, the gift of kind of seeing how much we live in concepts and have an experience of not being caught in them, for one. So four different steps connected to this whole thing of impermanence. So there's the cultivating the opposite, which is stability, having the insight into it, seeing it operate, seeing impermanence in our lives, perceiving how it works, seeing it well enough <clears throat> that uh, we see, start seeing that because it flows and changes so much, the concepts we have don't stick. They don't work so well because the concepts follow the experience. And so then we have the signless liberation, giving up the projections and just letting go in a deeper way. 
and that opens up to the gift of uh, beginner's mind. So the next two Sundays I'm here, I'll I'll do the next two characteristics, that of unreliability and not-self, and we'll follow the same four-step kind of process in that. Discuss what's the opposite of them, the insight themselves, the door of liberation they open to, and the gift that comes from that if you go through this process. So, um, if there's one thing I'd like to leave you with, two things I'd like to leave you with today, because you know, it's a lot, I said a lot today, I apologize for saying so much, is um, the idea that uh, it's useful to cultivate the opposite of the insights. And the insights are revelation. They come as we cultivate the opposites. That's one. And in, in particular around the impermanence, there's something about appreciating, noticing, being wise with impermanence and change that um, can lend itself to the gift of beginner's mind. And perhaps you might want to look a little bit right into